Hi, and welcome to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast, where we discuss current legal and practical issues in finance and related sectors. I'm Joel Simon, a finance partner at the international law firm Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman. We now have 10 podcast episodes under our belt, and to our listeners from wherever you are tuning in, welcome and thank you for listening. Today, I'm pleased to introduce you to Elizabeth Vela Moeller, the leader of Pillsbury's award-winning bipartisan public policy group. Based in Washington, D.C., Elizabeth manages high-stakes client matters involving technology, energy, and federal appropriations, including best practices for maximizing reimbursements under the CARES Act and related stimulus legislation. Our podcast isn't long enough for me to give you Elizabeth's full biography, so I'll stop there and refer you to our website for more. Suffice it to say, if you need to get a meeting with someone in the U.S. government, Elizabeth can probably get it for you. Thank you so much for that kind introduction, Joel. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate the chance to speak with your listeners today. What I'd like to talk to you about is the um, alternatives to the CARES Act, something a little different. The CARES Act has been in the news a lot, but when we spoke by phone last week, you mentioned to me that there are many programs that people seem to have forgotten about uh, through the Washington, D.C. appropriations process. Traditionally, Congress will do a two-step process. First, they'll authorize appropriations. So there's, there are authorizing committees in the House and the Senate. And then they turn it over and say, okay, now we want to appropriate funds to keep each of the different federal agencies in business. So to do that, the House and the Senate set up 12 matching subcommittees, and they work on 12 separate annual regular appropriations bills. So these are the bills where they write legislation creating programs. They can, of course, authorize the expenditures of funds on them. Now, earmarks were banned in 2011, and that means Congress can't specifically say, we'd like this to go to this project. But they can give a lot of legislative directive to an agency. And that's sort of a fun part for our, our practice as lawyer lobbyists. The 12 subcommittees each have very different jurisdictions. And I'll just give you some examples. They match the Departments of Commerce up with Justice and the FCC, uh, Labor, Health and Human Services, and Education is one subcommittee on its own. So you can see that Congress is trying to find a way to organize the spending process, and, and it does so throughout the year. Maybe you could give us an example of how you would help uh, a specific client or, uh, or work on a specific project, uh, something that uh, maybe you're working on currently. Thanks. I would love to. And just a couple thoughts. One is I've had the privilege of representing my home county of Stanislaus County, where my father's a fourth-generation winemaker, and most of our agenda is an all-of-the-above approach. Let's look at all 12 of these appropriations bills. Where can we match up? Where can we compete for grants? Where can we do pilot projects and secure federal funding for county priorities? And it's a lot of fun because good people and they know how to make every dollar count. And that makes it easy to go back for additional funds. But that's a client that's been in business. It knows the process. To us, for our practice, 
the really exciting opportunities are now. The COVID-19 pandemic at all levels is going to drive winners and sadly losers. Fortunately, we represent a lot of winners and winners should keep winning. Let me tell you about one of them that I've just recently been involved with. And this is a long-term client of our firms that's been busy doing real estate development without having a need to talk to different federal agencies. The client is Dan Bicewood, and in this case, he's been working with his team for more than 14 years to develop the first residential development in West Baltimore in more than 50 years. This is the first time this West Baltimore neighborhood has seen this kind of growth. And the vision, I'm so excited about it, really was to integrate and to put the neighborhood first. So now, 262 beautiful apartments in this perfect part of Baltimore, close to the University of Maryland and their professional schools. But it's now a great time for real estate. Probably not, just looking at the economy. So how can we help? And of course, I know you'll be advising him, Joel, on all the opportunities for the Main Street Loan Program. Right. And in this case, they have an issue and they have an opportunity with the Housing and Urban Development Agency. Joel, have you done much HUD work in your finance career? Um, I have not. Let's talk about what HUD does well. It promotes housing and urban development, right? Its mission is just that. And in the case of Dan Bythewood's company, we're working with them on a loan. The the company is minority-owned. They have investors. How can we leverage the success we hope to have soon with HUD and look at other federal agencies? So the next move is the Department of Transportation. And this is a project where Dan and his team will work hand-in-hand with the city of Baltimore, the state of Maryland. What are the best uh, opportunities? Could we foresee something such as a bus rapid transit, BRT, each year, Congress appropriates millions of dollars to mass transit. So we'll be pursuing this for the park square development and for the good of the people of Maryland as one other angle. Oh, but that's not all. What's next with the EDA? That's the Economic Development Administration that's part of the Department of Commerce. And the EDA administering their COVID funds for economic development projects. The the trick is a private company can't apply, but a public-private partnership, say someone uh, who may be listening who's an investor in opportunity zones, that's the sweet spot for this economic development program. So $1.5 billion, it can be spent on construction, it can be spent on planning. But why spend on planning when you can spend on construction? They want big, successful projects that they can show. That $1.5 billion is much more than they've ever had to spend. We've been working together for years, and they've never seen an annual appropriation of that size, but they do have annual appropriations. So it's a great chance, if you are tracking and working on any of these stimulus opportunities, to delve a little bit deeper, to make the extra efforts to do things in a professional way. That's a fantastic example, Elizabeth, because it really shows how 
by connecting different dots uh, together that people might not ordinarily think of uh, being connected, you can really achieve um, something much larger and really much more positive. I think uh, it's great having um, different people working together from different areas of the firm and getting these different agencies to combine um, either knowingly or not knowingly um, to a coordinated and cohesive project like that. Thank you. That, I couldn't agree more. And one of the meaningful things about the project with Dan Bythewood and his partners at La Cité in Baltimore is that it's perfectly poised as the right kind of public-private partnership. What? It's exactly what you would script with the city of Baltimore and the Baltimore Housing Authority, but also with having sophisticated investors and advisors. It makes, I think, those on our team feel like we're making a meaningful difference, too, and that always feels good. Definitely. What can you tell us about Stimulus 4? I'm willing to predict, Joel, that there will be a Stimulus 4 by the end of July. Uh, But it really does seem like (laughs) it's not a question of whether it is a question of when and scope. And a lot of Washington is at work on it now. Probably will be. It's going to be a long, hot summer. Well, thanks for that, Elizabeth. My takeaway is that uh, there's a convincing case that you've made regarding the many government programs that could really make a positive difference for so many companies if they take the time to learn about them. Thank you for uh, for joining us today on this, Elizabeth. It's been great. I really appreciate it. I love your thought leadership, Joel. It's been a pleasure. And if anyone wants to hear more insights from Elizabeth, tune in on most Wednesdays at noon to Pillsbury's Washington Week, which is a short webinar that helps you keep abreast of what's happening in the Beltway. And it's also available on demand on our website. Now it's time for This Week in History. Taking a lighter tone than we have in the past few weeks, I'd like to draw your attention to three things that occurred on June 27th that changed our world, hopefully for the better. First, we celebrate the anniversary of the birth of a woman in 1880 who forever changed the way we view people who have a disability. Overcoming being both blind and deaf, Helen Keller broke new ground by earning a bachelor's degree at university and later became an outspoken campaigner for women's suffrage and workers' rights, a famous author, and an inspiration to millions of people around the world. Second, in 1967, the world's first ATM machine was installed in Enfield, London, bringing convenience and 24-hour availability to consumer banking. And third, in 1994, Aerosmith became the first major band to allow fans to download a newly released single for free over the internet, which forever changed the way new music reaches listeners. Well, that wraps it up for today. See you next week, and thank you for listening to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast.